0: Hello folks, welcome to Courtside Wellness. I'm your host, Brandon St. Croix, former athlete and current social worker. On today's episode, we're joined by Bob Demers, filmmaker, screenwriter, former USC defensive end from 1997 to 2001, and college athlete rights activist. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Bob Demers' experience of being a student athlete at the University of South Carolina his experience of mental health, and his journey through his own battles, as well as his work as an advocate and activist. So thank you and enjoy. (music) And folks, we're back with Bob Demers, former USC football player and filmmaker. So Bob, thanks again for joining us on Courtsaw Wellness.
1: No, thank you for having me on. I'm glad that there's a podcast out here that's merging, you know, both the mental health and the athletic sides of things. Um, You know, uh, you know, we think about athletes being physical performers, but they're at the end of the day, mental performers. And when you get pushed to yourself physically, I think there's also some mental elements that break along the way. So, you know, I know I've had some of those experiences myself in college, Um, you know, since making the film. I've learned about a lot of guys that uh, have struggled with some of that aspect as well. And, you know, I think it's difficult for athletes in general to come to terms with even discussing mental health, because when you're out there doing these physical feats that um, and these superhuman things to um, mention something, a deficiency that people misassociate with your identity, it's very difficult for these proud individuals to come to terms with, let alone talk about and be vocal about. So I think it's important to have these types of
0: discussions. For sure. And you've always been a big advocate and a big voice for athletes as well, in terms of even before the film came out, you know, talking about your own experience and, you know, knowing other individuals who've experienced similar things. So for you, when did the moment come where you say, OK, this has to be talked about?
1: You know, I think I had to go through some therapy before I could even make the film that I had. Uh, you know, I, everybody's experience is unique and different. And, um, you know, I went to USC, uh, you know, I committed before my senior year in high school. And what happened was, um, you know, everybody that loved me got fired three months into my freshman year. So the new coach came in, this guy, Paul Hackett, and he basically told me, and I later found out several others, cause this is just a coaching move. That's pretty standard, um, that I wouldn't play for him and I should transfer. Uh, now the problem with that for me was I went to USC for a lot of reasons. I was in the business scholars program. Um, which 100 you know freshmen get to take business classes as a freshman. Um, you know I eventually became the first player to get in the film school there. Um, so I went to USC for a lot of reasons, and um, you know turned down other opportunities like Harvard and Stanford. So the thought of transferring, you know, um, I, I think that might make sense for other athletes that are going to certain schools specifically for football, but. I mean, I created a matrix to figure out where I was going to go. Literally, I I created, uh, you know, all the things I was interested in. I created magnitudes for that. I mean, I I literally did calculations to figure out where I was going to end up. And so to hear that at the end of the freshman year, and Hackett basically said, look, uh, you know, I hear you're transferring, which he didn't because I never even thought about it. And he said, well, if you wait to transfer after camp starts in August, then you'll have to sit out that year and an additional two years if you transfer Pac-12 which will leave you with one additional year to play. And I'm like, I'm just being blindsided by this. I'm like, well, I'm not transferring. He said, well, I'm just going to let you know that you're probably not going to play as long as I'm here. And I was like, okay. So I spent the next three years being expendable. And, um, you know, I think someone could just go look at my record and be like, oh, well, this guy didn't play. He wasn't good enough. I mean, I was practicing Uh, (laughs) All-American. Part of, unfortunately, being expendable is that, you can go you'll you'll go every snap so we had camps that were three a days not even just two a days uh, you know they don't even have two a days <laughs> these days anymore of course after i graduated all the rules changed uh, but we would have three practices in one day you get up at five thirty, you'd practice from six to nine you get a half hour break then you go from 9 30 to 12 30 you lift weights for 45 minutes do an ice bath grab a lunch back on the field from two thirty to 5 30 dinner in the meeting room, watching film from 6 to 10, uh, and then in bed. And it was 24 days straight, um, including Saturdays and Sundays. And it honestly felt like, um, I mean, it felt like nine months in those <laughs> those three and a half weeks. And I was trying to prove myself. And so you'd start with 14 D linemen, and then by day four or five, you'd have you know anywhere from five to eight. And so because I knew all four positions and I was expendable... I was going every snap in practice. Um, scrimmages, I'd go 80 plays in a row. And um, the, the first two years, I didn't miss a practice. I was one of just a handful of guys, most of who were kickers that weren't really <laughs> banging heads all day. Um, you know, Keep in mind, Ed Ogeron, the LSU, former LSU head coach, was my D-line coach at the time. So imagine getting screamed to him all day while you're out there in 100-degree weather doing three days um, You know, as an athlete that they don't really care about and you're pushing yourself through injuries. And so what happened is the third year of that, which was going into my fourth year at USC, my second to last year, uh, my penultimate year, um, I started waking up in the middle of the night vomiting. And um, I didn't know why. And so I I was just uncontrolled. I was literally vomiting before I was waking up. It's not like I was waking up sick and then getting sick. Um, I was vomiting before I woke up. And uh, I was just constantly, I couldn't stop for weeks on end. So I went to camp 255 five days in I'm 225 I lost 30 pounds in five days I'm still practicing uh and I you know there's this there's this kind of old adage of when you're an athlete of are you hurt or are you injured Uh, you know when you go to the training room if you're making the choice to remove yourself from playing um you know it's it's seen as a sign of weakness and so I you know, avoided that at all costs, because I don't want to be misjudged. And I remember there was always this, uh, we we had practices at UC Irvine. And there was always this really elderly like guy in his 90s that we'd see in the in the locker room. And every year, because he would swim and he'd go and he'd shower. And I just, I don't remember losing consciousness. I just remember this 96 year old guy trying to help me off the floor of the shower. And um, there was just this moment of clarity for me, where the irony of the situation, whereas I'm supposed to be in the best shape of my life and my prime. And here's this guy in the later stage of his life, that's helping trying to help me off the shower floor. And so I got dressed and I went into the training room and one of the trainers, um, you know, before I said anything, which I was thankful for at the time, she was like, your lips are purple, sit down. Um, and she tried to take my pulse and she couldn't get a pulse reading on me. Um, She was a pre-med student. She said I had all these telltale signs that I was potentially going into cardiac arrest. Um, They needed to put me on IV fluids. And if you've ever seen those big bags of saline fluid, uh, if you go through like a bag and a half, that means you're dehydrated. You're supposed to take on fluid until you have to pee. Of course, they couldn't have a doctor that could intravenously give me something except for um, this guy, Dr. Taboni, who was an orthopedic surgeon and hadn't put a needle on anybody's arm in 20 years. And so one of my vein collapses. Um, he puts it in the other vein, he's able to get it in there. Uh, and I went through six bags. They ran out of bags. Actually, They're, um, I didn't pee until the next day. Actually, um, I was so severely dehydrated and the constant vomiting for two weeks had, uh, scarred the inside of my esophagus and swelled it up. So my breathing was somewhat labored, but that was just because, um, my air tunnel had closed a little bit. So they sent me to the doctor, um, the next day, they put a camera down my throat. They did an endoscopy. And um, you know, just said that they saw scar tissue, so they didn't know. I didn't know that I was basically vomiting because I had given myself form of post traumatic stress by pushing myself through injuries in three days and going every single snap. Um, yeah, everyone else was going through three days too, but I think for me it was just one of these rare circumstances where I was expendable. I was trying to prove myself. You know, when you, when you go and you're a scholarship athlete and you're one of the best athletes in your area. You're carrying everybody's hopes and dreams and wishes. And so I was trying not to let everybody down. Um, you know, there's this great line in Hoop Dreams um, that always stands out to me when one of the guys that they followed, he's he, he said, you know, everyone comes up to me and says, hey, man, don't forget about me. When you're big time and you make it, don't forget about me. And his response was, well, if I don't make it, don't forget about me. So there's this mental aspect of you're carrying everybody's dreams and wishes. And I don't want to let anyone down. And I was practicing the next day after I had that endoscopy. And so there wasn't really anybody looking after my uh, mental well-being at the time. And I proceeded to vomit every August for a week, wake up vomiting for the next eight years. Um, And it was at that point that I kind of realized that it was systemic of something else. Like the next year, I thought there was black mold in the apartment. I was actually in the hospital for a year, the year after I graduated, um i I was I was in the hospital for a month one year after I graduated and racked up 150 thousand dollars in uh, hospital bills because my uh, my parents I didn't know they had taken me off their uh, medical insurance and uh <laughs> got a job yet so uh, I just had bad credit for my 20s basically uh because I couldn't pay any of those bills and so it was something that kind of followed me along in life and it wasn't until I addressed that I had um these demons that I kind of had to face in my past. And I had to recognize that um, I had sustained some mental health issues uh, from pushing myself beyond my physical means. And um, I think a lot of people that are removed from athletics in general, um, or from an experience like that um, would, would call you a wuss or something that even you know, more, <laughs> uh, you know, flavorful language. Um, And I'll tell you, you know, unless you've gone through something like that, unless you've literally, you know, they say you'll pass out before you die. No, you pass out and then you die is what happens. And Corey Stringer, um, you know, was a death that happened in the NFL right around that time that created, um, you know, kind of new checks and balances within the system. Um, There were checks and balances. They were doing weigh-ins and weigh-ins after every practice because of three days, but nobody – alerted to the fact that I had lost 30 pounds in five days um so they were doing these things but they weren't checking them um so that was really I think the first time that I I really started thinking about athletes rights in general um and some people are like oh well you had a coach that wouldn't let you play no there wasn't really any score in there I got to start for Pete Carroll my senior year uh I stuck it out um you know but in hindsight um you know, some people have asked me what if I had the chance to go back and do it all again, would I do it? And unless it was making the business of amateurs and what led to that path that ultimately led to some other good things, uh, no, I, I wouldn't do it again.
0: And I definitely want to get into that about the business of amateurs because again, amazing film that you put together. But one thing as you know, as you're talking, again, you you're going through all this, like I said, the three days, like I said, the thirty pounds weight loss, the constant vomiting. And again, You were a student athlete with all the schedule you had of, like I said, you know, morning workouts, midday, gym, you know, being in the gym, working out, everything included. Yeah,
1: and and they started before, you know, they make sure to take all your time before you have to go to class. (laughs) So, you know, for SC, class didn't start until literally like the day after camp ends, like you're starting class. Um, I think we got one day off. I think we came back like on a Sunday and then we got like a Monday off or something like that. But um, yeah, you, you, you're not really thought of, you know, I always thought that I was an athlete student um, and not a student athlete, because if you look at it, everything really revolves around um, your football schedule. You know, you get access to priority registration for your classes because you have to take classes that fit around football and not the other way around. In fact, for film, one of the things that had prevented, I think, other athletes from being in the film school before was their prerequisites for um, the cinema television, um, now called the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Um, there's Cinema 101 is on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 2 to 6. And you're practicing in both of those semesters. And so I met with Liz Daly, um, the, the dean of the, the film program, and I said, I know this doesn't make any sense, but, but can I just take Cinema 101 last <laughs> so that my my last second semester in spring when I don't have football and I don't have obligations to football, that I can actually take that class? And she agreed. Um, so that's kind of how that came about. Uh, but there was, you know, I did an article in Time Magazine um, while I was raising money for the film where I talk about some of these things. And one of the, the things that came up was... In spring, I had a business class where sometimes you'd have business classes that were six o'clock at night um, and film classes a lot of times were from like seven to 10. So it didn't get in the way. But sometimes you had these business classes at six. So in spring football, you know, you're practicing until like roughly six o'clock and then, you know, you'd shower and you'd go to class and you would just be late to class. Um which obviously isn't a good look if you're a serious student, but you didn't want to get yelled at by your coach or thought that you cared less about football. But I had a particular business class that if you were late, even a minute late once or absent without a doctor's note, and you were allowed one of these, you were allowed to be late once or absent once your whole grade dropped one whole grade letter grade. So you could have a perfect grade in the class. And if you were a minute late twice, the best grade you could get the class was a B. So I had to have somebody that told me to leave practice literally at 12 minutes to six where I'd run off the field, throw my pads off, throw clothes on. I wouldn't even shower, sprint to class. I'd get there with seconds to spare. One time I was late by like a few seconds and I got dinged for it, but I didn't lose a grade. And every single day that I got asked to leave in the spring early, um, Ed O'Dron would just cuss me out and call me every name under the sun. And uh, my dad raised me to look coaches in the eyes when they yell at you and to not offer any excuses. And that's what I did. Um, I think OJron comes from a school of thought. He's like that junkier dog when you like stare at him long enough he'll he'll start growling at you. Um, so <laughs> it, it worked with every other coach in my life until him. Um, whereas he kind of thought I was uh, as he said bowling up to him like I'm trying to like create more animosity by staring him down while he's yelling at me. Um, so the article came out with Time magazine and it was uh, it was time.com. And it ended up being, like, the most hit on day in, like, that year because it was they got an article with Edward Snowden that um, it was the first time he spoke after, like, leaving. And it said, I can never go home again. And there's this massive Edward Snowden article. And then right underneath it, instead of talking about mental health or all, all the inarguable things that we're talking about today, um, it says, ex-USC player says coach MF asterisk asterisk him for going to class. And it's just a picture picture of Ed Odron screaming. And I'm like – Okay, I mean, obviously the article was really well well written, um, but it was like this this moment where I was like, okay, it was this what's journalism's become to a certain degree, which is about eyeballs and clickbait and and all the things that we've kind of seen in order to you know get more traction. And uh, yeah, I mean, the comments that I got, people would pay five bucks to get in my Facebook inbox and would say like I'm gonna die young and I don't know. I was just like got a lot of hate from that. Um, and once again, it was really an amplification of how far football culture has gone. You know, it's this, it's, it's this indoctrination and this religion that we want to stand behind our team in this certain capacity, regardless of what happens. But even to the point of detrimental um, aspects, like attacking a player that's actually trying to do some positive things for um, the players as a whole, and even the schools.
0: And I think that's a great point, because again, it, it looks at how student-athletes, are put under his microscope. And again, you know, between the systems, organizations, and the cultures, you know, are silenced. And, you know, athletes can feel safe to speak out. They feel, hey, you know, if I say this, what's going to happen to my career? If I say that, you know, what's going to happen? So it's the, okay, well, what do I do? I feel trapped.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and and you know, Ed Odron had left to coach at Ole Miss and he was now back at the school. So the fan base was like, oh, you're attacking the school. And I was like, I mean, look. I, uh, if if I wanted to really be honest about everything with 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 that particular coach, um, there, yeah, there's things I'll take to my grave because uh, <laughs> he's got free time on his hands and he could just find out where I live. Um, so there's 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 a lot of dark aspects um, and that I experienced with some coaches. And um, but there's a, the amazing coaches out there. John Robinson was a father figure to many players. You know, Pete Carroll. Um, you know, half the coaches out there really are um you know mentors and motivators and there's a lot of great ones out there um and then there's some that yeah they're they're money driven they're success driven um if you don't look like you're going to play in the in, in the nfl then they, they don't care about you because you're not going to get added to their resume um you know i actually uh i'm not a super religious person i'm a very spiritual person but i went to bible study that was kind of how i coped a little bit was was just um reading scripture um And not in an evangelical, like, let's go push this religion. But, you know, I was trying to lean on anything I could to try to mentally make it through um, those three and a half years before that um, shroud kind of lifted. And Pete Carroll came in and and he made me love playing football again. Um, But, yeah, there wasn't really any space. There wasn't, I didn't know. I'm sure that there was stuff at the university to be offered for mental health. Um, There was never anything really offered to me as an athlete or that I knew that I was aware of. Um, And a lot of these things have now since come into fruition and we've seen um, these places where, and I still do think that there's a stigma, you know, that, that people have uh, about mental health in general. I mean, I talk about my own uh, mental issues in the documentary, not because I really didn't want to um, for all the reasons that we're talking about, but I know that there's a lot of athletes that struggle with, depression and anxiety. And, um, and some of it is related to, yeah, like, uh, the, the things that I experienced, you know, there, that was something that I overcame, you know, probably 12 years ago. Uh, but panic disorder, um, I was diagnosed with that about nine years ago and that stems really from the subconcussive blows. So what happens is when you're a football player and you, you're constantly bashing your head into other players. Um, A lot of people think there's kind of this misnomer that, Oh, well, how many concussions did you have? Well, you have these repetitive sub concussive blows. So an average football player is having 900 to 1500 of these sub concussive blows um, three days, probably double that. Right. Uh, And, and over their period of their career, what happens is brain cells, you know, they're unmyelinated. So um, they they don't grow back after they die, but they don't die when they're, when they're actually shocked. um, And you have these sub concussive blows, uh, but what happens is they, they're they traumatized and they eventually die off sooner than they should. And about 13, 14 years later, they harden into what this this tau protein is, which is the telltale sign of chronic traumatic and telepathy that we see in athletes. And we're only able to really test for it for when they die, although they're working on new things right now to test for it. And for some guys, it turns into ALS, it turns into Parkinson's. Um, for most, it manifests in depression or anxiety. And a lot of these athletes that can't come to terms with um, this mental health struggle that they're that they're dealing with, they self medicate. Uh, so Scott Ross was was my friend who was uh, in the film was the linebacker next to Junior Seau, and he's kind of the thread of the film. You know, we we talk about the money to show the disparity in the gap. We talk about academic integrity, and we talked about the the mental uh, health issues that um, ultimately are these issues that show up down the stream. It's a public bad that's being generated because these guys that can't work down the line and they can't get disability related to their injuries um, because the system's not set up that way. Uh, society's absorbing these costs. And a lot of these guys that um, accidentally take their own life or, or deliberately take their own life uh, because they're dealing with these mental issues are systemic of, of, you know, what they endured in football. So I, I, I remember I had to, I played the film for my dad and, you know, cause I didn't want him to watch the film after it came out and then, you know, wonder why I didn't share some of this stuff with him. And the reality is I hadn't shared a lot of this stuff with a lot of people. So I was still scared to kind of do it. And my dad called me after he'd watched the film. And I just remember for a couple of months, he called me and he, he'd be like, Hey, Bob. And there was this like this lull and this, this kind of this worry that a parent has about their kids. Um, and I'm like, dad, look, you gotta, you gotta stop talking to me like crazy. Okay. This is, and I had to really explain to him that, you know, this is something that happens to me. It isn't me. Um, I, I don't have any triggers for my panic disorder. Uh, a lot of people can have it because they're traumatized and there could be, um, triggers for them, sounds and smells. And, you know, like if somebody gets raped and there's, there could be all these things that trigger that. Um, whereas my brain can literally just malfunction and, um, so, you know, and I hate the name, it's the panic attack, like I'm panicking, like things are are difficult, and I'm panicking, and I can't take it. Um, and, and what it is, is your brain malfunctions. And it's this latent part of the brain where we were basically food for other animals. And it was fight or flight, right? But it's really fight, flight, or freeze. And uh, the best way to kind of describe it, if someone's ever never had one, uh, it's very much like a, like a bad trip. Like, uh, you know, I've smoked weed in my life before. And I'm, don't do it because it creates anxiety. Uh, but you can have basically a bad trip. And uh, imagine your brain, um, you know, when, when it, somebody has a bad trip, or they have a panic disorder, and your brain malfunctions, and you lose the ability to think clearly. Um, and your, your your thoughts starts racing out of control. For me, it's a very physical sensation when it happens. Um, and it's, it's one of these things that I honestly thought somebody drugged me. I was in a meeting at Jeremy Renner's company. And it was one of these meetings where they're pitching us things and they're, we're pitching them things. And it's just, it's, it's this meeting that's going nowhere. And I, all of a sudden the room got really long. The back of my head got really hot. And, um, and I honestly wanted to run out of the room, but I could objectively know that that looked, that would look crazy. Uh, So I just kind of wrote it out. And, um, and then because that one happened, You know, the more that you have them, the more susceptible you are to have them. And I kept having them. And, uh, you know, I got deeper into therapy. I started practicing mindfulness. Uh, I am on a medication that's an SSRI, a low dose that actually uh, keeps them at bay. And uh, it took me years to be able to take that step in order to actually um, become medicated for it. Uh, I do have Xanax that I... uh, don't use regularly, but it's nice to know that I have it in case it does happen to me. And um, I've had at least probably about a couple dozen of athletes that I played with uh, in high school and college and some that I don't know that have just reached out that have basically more or less said, I have what you have. And it's this, you know, they're confiding in somebody um, like myself. And that's ultimately why I like to, I don't mind talking about it now because I don't look like somebody that suffers from a mental disorder Um, and I can go on live television. I can do these things that might generate panic um, and that I am nervous to do like any other individual. Um, But I think by being open and honest and communicating it, it pulls the venom out of it and it allows others to um, talk about it as well. And we've entered this safer space. I I do think Robin Williams' suicide was a, uh, a watershed moment, I think, for society to look at this person that was always so happy and generated so much laughter to have been suffering at such a level. You know, I think people, when they see suicide, they think how selfish. And I have a lot more empathy because I think, man, you know how much pain that person had to be in in order to take that step. And I'm not obviously an advocate for suicide, but I empathize with people um, that have struggled with it to that point. Because unless you've experienced depression, uh, or anxiety. Um, and I've experienced depression. Um, I experienced it when I was going through kind of discovering why I was vomiting all those years. And I experienced it again when, you know, when I had knee surgery, they put me on, um, Percocets and, uh, you know, the, I had, they had to repair a couple of ligaments in my knee. Um, one that was recent, um, that happened because I didn't have the, the PCL posterior crucious ligament, which I still don't have in my other knee. And they put you on all these heavy doses of pain meds and I got behind the pain. So I had to take a lot of them to catch up on the pain and coming off of opioids, just in general, barbiturates, opioids, certain things will trigger these moments of depression. And uh, last when it happened to me, like I think four or five years ago, I was like, oh, I remember this when you're in a a depressive cycle, um, just like when you're in a panic attack, you feel like you're never going to get out of it and it's very hopeless and you think this is, I'm stuck like this forever and it's very painful. And so people toss around, Oh, I'm depressed. Well, being depressed about something external is different than depression. You can win the lottery and, and have this, still have this shroud over your, your brain. And, um, so I do have empathy for people that have experienced either of these things, um, because I've experienced it myself and I hope I, talking about it like I'm on this podcast that someone else might be listening and it might help them uh it might help them to also talk about it uh which could then in turn help other people and create a chain effect of some positive push for mental health
0: 100% because again when it comes to physical injuries or physical health you know someone says oh I have diabetes or I have you know cholesterol concerns or you know I tore my you know mcl or you know i got a sprained shoulder you know it's very you know easily talked about freely uh, discussed but when it comes to mental health it's a whole different topic it's you know a different emotion comes with it it's a different you know conversation it's different tone but again health is health at the end of the day
1: yes absolutely and you you break your arm you wear a cast and people can physically um i remember every time like i you know i have a knee surgery or whatever and i'm Limping, or you you have this, you know, you're on crutches for a while, and people that you don't know will stop. i like, what happened to you? Or people that you do know, and you'll be like, well, I was in a football game and I blocked a kick and we almost won the game. and The guy pulled me down, and I tore my ligament, and that opened it up, and then I did. And then you tell this whole story, and then you'll you'll limp another ten feet, and somebody like, what happened to your what happened to your knee? And I'm like, go talk to that guy. I just told him the whole story, and you're kind of almost tired of telling that injury story. Uh, but whereas with mental health, yes, a lot of people struggle silently because it's not a visible injury. And, uh, and and some people like myself, when it was happening to me, in both instances, I didn't know that I was struggling with mental health issues when I was struggling with them in both instances. So, uh, I mean, it just shows you how much this conversation wasn't in the ether um, at either of those times. And now that it is, people are able to recognize symptoms um, they're able to, yeah. I mean, athletes can do hyperbaric treatments that can really help open up pathways. Uh, I do think mindfulness and meditation um, is is an overlooked science. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's overlooked, but I'd say it's a it's an avenue that a lot of people don't explore that they should. Um, and it's and it's difficult. You know, I, I have ADD. Like sometimes I get off track in conversations, but I've created mental tools to circle back and come back to where I was talking. Uh, And it allows me to be creative. It allows me to do all these things. But I'm also aware that uh, having ADD is within the family that makes me more susceptible to anxiety. Um, I didn't have anxiety as a child, um, but I've I've had ADD undiagnosed for a long time. Um, A lot of people in my family have, you know, so It's like any, you know, it's like kids that are on the spectrum that get diagnosed late or, you know, we have those grandparents and uncles that I'm like, oh, yeah, Uncle John's really pretty sure he has undiagnosed Asperger's. Uh, You know, now that we know more about these designations and we're continue to come up with new classifications and new growth um, within the mental health industry, which which in turn is helping become more treatable in the grand scheme. And for me, the way that I am able to meditate is with a device called the Muse device. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it it measures the P waves of the brain. Um, It connects to an audio uh, app in your your phone. And you can actually sense, it senses when you're, I don't know how it does it, but it's remarkable when it does it. When you're being mindful and you're being connected and present, because mindfulness isn't stop thinking, it's being able to observe your thoughts and being able to observe your anxiety if you have a panic attack and gaining those tools along the way. And uh, it, it sends these noises of nature and bird tweets when you're being mindful. But when you're not and your mind is getting off track and it's starting to race, the weather gets worse and worse and, and thunder. And, and and it's this almost Pavlovian element that allows somebody like myself with ADD to actually understand what mindfulness is because just sitting in a room and being quiet for five minutes wasn't enough. And so I needed to utilize a device that, um, which I think is, you know, I don't know if there's any programs out there that, you know, I'm not sponsored by the Muse device or anything like that. Um, and I mean, this is technology that would have cost tens of thousands of dollars a couple of decades ago, and now it's, it's 150 bucks, you know? And, and so, you know, there's, there's kids out there that aren't even athletes that, uh, you know, uh, I'm an educator and I work with a lot of kids and, and I, you know, invite them to come in and try this device and, or talk to the parents about it. Uh, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just trying to help people, yep. and um, mainly because I know how it helped me and how it can potentially help others. So there's great forms of technology uh, beyond just the education and the awareness that's out there now.
0: Yep. And that's a great point because again, you know, the way coping is, you know, currently compared to what it was. Like I said, you know, from 1996 to 2001, you were a student athlete with USC, and you talked about, like I said, you know, what coping was or what services were back then. And even a memory you talked about, you know, in terms of when the uh, business of amateurs came out, you know, what Colby looked like for yourself and for your friend uh, Scott Ross, like I said, and would you say that was a big, you know, inspiration for the film?
1: Yeah, Scott was a guy that, um, so I, I had a buddy, um, you know, graduated USC in the eighties and, um, he, he he bought a place in Brentwood. I was basically Cato Kalen um, to this guy. I mean, he didn't murder him. He wasn't OJ, but uh, I was the I was lucky to stay at this house in, in Brentwood for as a roommate for eight years. That didn't charge me some you know crazy rent um, and allowed me to take some of the risks I was taking, including making this film. Uh, you know, very good friend of mine, and he knew Scott Ross. I had only heard the legend of Scott Ross, or you know, seen him on the walls over the years and throughout you know the other Americans that were plastered along USC. And, you know, he was 39 years old. He was diagnosed with dementia at 39. You know, he had lost his job. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people point to Scott Ross and be like, oh, well, he had problems with alcohol. And, of course, he did. But um, I'll tell you, when we shot the film, when we went out there, we were supposed to meet him at 8 a.m. in Texas and kind of middle south Texas. And he was late. And it was 9. And it was 10. Eleven thirty, 11 30 and I'm calling him I'm like dude and finally shows up like 12 15 you know like four hours late and I mean I had flown myself and my cinematographer and editor who also shoots with us and uh, I'm like oh my gosh like what are we doing here and if you know Scott Scott was very out of sorts and very hit or miss on days you were talking to him and days where he would have conspiracies and talk about crazy things and days where he would I mean, he, he'd answer the phone. You know, if the handle on this bottle was a trigger, I'd pull it. And I'd be up talking to him until 5.30 in the morning well, until my wife left. And I'd just be sitting there talking to him while he was in the the throngs of a depressive um, manic drinking episode. And uh, for, for when we shot Scott, when you watch the documentary, it's interesting. He was lucid that day. Uh, more clear than I did. It's almost like whatever higher power you want to talk, um, had given him his brain back for three hours. And we interviewed him for an hour and a half. We went to his doctor and we talked to him and then we dropped him off at his motel six. And he was with us the whole time. And you would have thought that he had just taken a bunch of drugs or something. Cause by the time we got back to the hotel, he could barely walk, um, uh, because he was so mentally spent from giving us all that energy in those three hours. And, um, you know, people that understand that people that have TBI, traumatic brain injuries, um, that this can you know affect them the rest of their life. And, um, you know, until I actually talked to the brain doctors in Boston and all these other people that we talked to, I, I wasn't fully educated on what had happened. But I'm like, wait, Scott was literally, he didn't even like go to the bathroom at any point. There was nothing, uh, you know, about him except that he was physically needed to pass out because um, he was so spent. And so we got Scott in this little brief moment and, um, you know, losing Scott while we're making the film was really difficult because, well, I mean, it it elevated the film and there's a lot of guilt that comes with that in knowing that, um, you know, your friend's death is, is potentially elevating, you know, the message in the film. And so there is a silver lining that, it, it projected it in his story and you know created um some positive changes in legislation and legislation all this other stuff that's happened in, in the last you know nine months to three years and since the film came out um but i i struggle i still struggle with that um you know because i didn't i never wanted to feel like i was exploiting him or his story and uh, and i don't feel like i did i mean i'm really close with the family and you understand I couldn't get the family to interview for the film because they were telling him like yeah I'm gonna I'm, I'm in this documentary but he's talking about things off the rails all the time and so they didn't know what to believe and uh you know I was I was able to meet uh Janie and Marshall uh his his parents at his funeral and they were able to see the film and they've been very supportive of it they've been very supportive of um athletes rights since then and and yeah, I mean, they're like family to me now. So, you know, um, that I think helped me to cope with, you know, Scott's death as well. But, um, it was difficult cause I was meeting with USC, something that's not in the film that I have not really talked a lot about was I spent a year trying to create a health plan that would cover athletes for their injuries. They sustain in that sport for the next 60 years, um, By a fluke, a good buddy of mine was pretty high up at Blue Cross Anthem and was a big part of creating algorithms for health plans. And so I'm like, what if we created a health plan that every athlete in every sport, walk-ons included, let's just say you tear a ligament in your knee and you need to get a a knee replacement when you're 60 or you need to have a a ligament repair or something that's related specifically to that injury, that they're covered for that injury for the next um, X number of years. I think we put 60 years. And the problem that we ran up against was we we couldn't get a carrier to adopt that without having an exclusion for mental issues um, because they didn't really know what the long-term cost for that was. And so I met with USC, and I met with um, J.K. McKay, which is John McKay's son, who was there. Uh, Pat Hayden, who was the athletic director at the time, uh, wouldn't meet with me. Um which Pat Hayden also, you know, when that article came out in Time Magazine, um, insinuated that I lied and that those practices were open to the press, um, which wasn't true. Um, so technically he lied to cover up for the school um, for the sake. Uh, we, we had a lot of closed practices, actually. And even the ones that were open, you know, when we're doing D-line drills in the other area, uh, there's no press around that. They have curtains around, you know, they have these, these uh, rope barriers for where people could be. Um, so, you know, he, he kind of talked out the left side of his mouth. So I didn't really have a lot of respect for him. Um, and I still don't, um, you know, for, for him to choosing to take that path, um, for being a former athlete himself. Um, he had the opportunity to do a lot of things for college athletes, uh, while at USC and he didn't. And, um, he's the only person that I offered to provide questions to be interviewed for the film. Uh, he chose not to, um, but, um, another guy mark jackson who worked in the athletic department um was really a proponent of what i was trying to do um he's now the athletic director at uh vanderbilt uh phenomenal guy uh and i met with him and um another guy named ron orr and you know talked to him about what i was trying to do and i remember ron grabbed his knee in the meeting and he said well you know i hurt my knee in high school." Does that mean that my high school should pay for my knee injury? I said, well, if they if they made $100 million a year, it would probably be the right thing to do. Um, and the thing is, I know USC helps athletes with their injuries later on. I knew three guys that they helped them out with their injuries. But it's difficult for an athlete to ask help for something that, once again, athletes are prideful in nature. And I said it's different to have to off, ask for help versus to know that it's being offered. Um, and I'm like, the fact that you've helped these guys and you guys aren't from a PR standpoint shouting from the highest mountaintop, there's a reason that you're not doing that. <laughs> and that's because you don't want to create this blanket response that we're going to help all these athletes with everything. So I said, well, what is it going to take for me um, to get this done? And they said, well, you have to get through compliance. And there's a guy named Dave Roberts who... You know, compliance officers are in a basement with windowless basements. And if you <laughs> catch your school breaking the rules and you're good at your job, you probably won't have your job very long. Um, and Dave Roberts wasn't a bad guy. And they said, you got to get through compliance. And then you've got to get through the board of the football program and then the athletic department and then the school president. And then you've got to make it through to the Pac-12, um, the head of the Pac-12. When I was like, OK, so they set all these obstacles in front of me. And so I said, all right, well, give me Dave Roberts' number. (laughs) So I I called him, I met with him, and uh, he basically told me that schools are prevented from helping athletes with um, their injuries beyond when they're at the school. And what he didn't know is that I had talked to a guy in the New York Times that had just gotten a bylaw from 2013, um, reinterpreted um, to say that there's no limit to what a school can provide for an athlete's injury, but that does that extend to when beyond. So they had two reinterpretations. One was, can they help athletes after they're gone and there's no limitations? And it says, yes, but they had a second interpretation, which is if this is related to disability, then no. And so, um, I met with Dave and then what happened was in the meeting that I originally had with USC, um, you know, JK McKay, um, seemed like a really nice guy. He's like, well, you know, does Scott need our help? You know? And I said, well, yeah, you know, he, he needs medication and he has to get copays on his meetings with, with his doctors in order to even get the prescription that he needs in order to stay even. And he can't afford those copays. Um, and then a few weeks later, Scott died and I was really better about it. Um, because I was trying to honestly, you know, it was the only subjective thing that I did in making the film was I I had a plan that if I could create this health plan and get USC to be the first one to do it, then other schools would be forced to do it for the sake of competition. Because when they tell these parents, we're going to take care of your kid, we're going to give them an education, and if they're hurt, we're going to be there for them. And these promises that are made in living rooms throughout the country, that USC would get this great recruiting edge that other schools would be forced to ultimately do. Um, And it's how this bill that ultimately got passed with NIL, Um, the fastest way to change the system. I mean, there's lots of ways. There's legislation, there's litigation, there's unionization. Um, Yeah. Athletes could just be enlightened and and protest and do it. But by the time they're light, they're out the door. Um, But competition is the fastest way to do it. So the NIL bill that passed in California um, that the was written, you know, by the national collegiate players association, uh, which I'm on the oversight committee for, and then other states, and then eventually got to the Supreme Court this last year, um, was kind of how it matriculated into that. So my initial reasoning was competition. You know, I learned it from Andy Schwarz, the sports economist that was in the film, who's just a genius. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get to make USC the hero in this film. Um, ultimately, UCLA ended up being <laughs> the hero in the film because we had Ed O'Bannon and we had Ramogi Huma. Uh, a linebacker from um, the 90s, uh, about a year older than me, that started the National Collegiate Players Association and has really become the voice of all of this movement. And I give him as much credit as I possibly can um, in, the, in all of this. And um, so, yeah, I still think that health plan is not a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> I do think that that would be a great thing. Um, and, and, you know, force schools to, not force, but I guess force them because they're not doing it. Um, you know, to, they, they have the money to do that. I mean, the plan that we generated, we figured it would cost about one to three million dollars a year for the policy to cover, you know, like 1500 athletes for the injuries sustained in the sport that year for the next 60 years. So we we created an algorithm. We just never got an insurance company to adopt it without that exclusion. And ultimately, um, I lost hope in USC doing something after Scott Ross died. And, you know, making the film, the hardest thing in making the film was how do I reconcile that I'm very proud of what I've accomplished as a college athlete? Uh, I'm proud of being a Trojan. I'm proud of all the things that I, I've gone through and worked through um, and my teammates and the camaraderie and all these great positive things that comes with being an athlete. And how do I reconcile that with all these things that I'm trying to do and this criticism um, that I have about schools, including my own. And uh, Chris, Kirsten Hexstrom, who's in the film, who was a rower from Berkeley that wrote a white paper Um, and she put it so poignantly. She's like, well, this is what we do with things that we care about with our friends and our family and our loved ones is, is we push them to be better. And um, I've probably restated that a hundred times since making that, it was such an enlightening moment for me um, in making the film that was like, yeah, I'm not, I can push my school to be better. And that doesn't take away from the fact that I, can still love my school and I can still be proud of what I did as a college athlete.
0: And it's true because again, it's easy to say, Oh, well, it's okay. It's good enough. But again, you know, anything we, we truly care about, we want to see improve.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, the, there's been a lot of strides that have been made and uh, you know, go to national collegiate players, Association, national college players association, um, ncpanow.org. You know, if you're going to donate to any nonprofit that's a true nonprofit that's out there looking out for college athletes' rights, you're not going to find a better organization to donate to. Um, and they are still pushing. People think that it ends at NIL. Um, but, you know, there's there's athletes that are being sexually abused, um, that are being physically abused. Um, there's, there's, you know, athletes that aren't allowed to take their majors because it's all about um, – being eligible rather than getting an actual education. There's all these different things that people think, well, now that players can make money for their name and likeness, the fight's over. Not really. Um, if you look at all the different things, they still don't have the same employees that the, the same guarantees that an employee would get, um, which, yeah, let's just say you are hobbled for the rest of your life. You know, that there is a disability to take care of these guys. Um, and I met several along the way that can't work, um, because the deficiencies, um, their traumatic brain injuries. Um, And there's, there's not really any recourse for those guys, unfortunately. And there still needs to be a push for more of these different things that don't exist yet.
0: And in terms of, you know, making a film, seeing the changes has happened, what would you say is one of the, you know, next steps you look to see change for student athletes and for their overall well-being? You know... I think it, it, it takes – at the end of
1: the day, it's getting the fans to uh, – unfortunately, I, I've, I've always thought that it would take something really bad to happen for people to <laughs> see just how bad it can be. Um, and I hope it doesn't get to that point. I think I think fan culture has to change a little bit. And in, 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 that's why I said I feel like it's almost unfortunate that it's like something bad has to happen for fans to realize just how much some of these athletes have been pushed to the brink um, in terms of mental health and physicality. Um, you know, we, we saw what happened at, you know, um, you know, with, with the at um, it's Michigan state, right? Or was it Michigan? It's Michigan state. <laughs> was, I didn't want to say the wrong school. I was pretty sure it was Michigan state. Um, I mean, we saw with the, with the doctor for the general population at USC, um, you know, we're, we're, we're you're seeing people that have been abused in different capacities. And so I think bringing this awareness to the forefront has helped create more positive change because of that. Um, you know, I do hope athletes can at some point get the same rights that an employee gets so that if they don't have the ability to work down the line that they're covered from that, you know, they give up so much from a time commitment standpoint, um, to provide for this entertainment and, and the trade off of a free education is, is, um, is fantastic. It's just at the end of the day, with the amount of money that's being made um, the fact that some of these protections aren't just a given and put in place is ridiculous. So I think creating a fund for, for players that need disability help um, is a major step that has to take place that hasn't yet. And the fact that it doesn't just kind of sickens me, you know, because right now, if you look at NIL, all these schools that were pushing back against it, the irony is schools are making more money than ever. Because now they can broker these deals. We were actually trying to, you know, prevent that from happening. But schools are taking 30% now on some of these deals. They're making more money uh, from this sponsorship in-house than they would have otherwise. Um, So they're having their cake and eating it too. And uh, I don't think that schools are going to do the right thing, unfortunately. Um, I think it was Upton St. Clair. Um, I forget what essay it was, but he said, you can't count on a man to do the right thing when their salary depends on them to not do the right thing. Um, and I'm paraphrasing that, but, uh, I think that that's really kind of shows <laughs> where the state of it is. You know, we know where the money's going. Uh, we know the gold plating that's happening with, you know, the spending of, and the hiring and all that. And the institution ne- needs to take control of, um, the athletic department because the athletic department's not going to do it because they want to spend the money um on other things and that includes getting more valuable recruits rather than
0: taking care of these guys that are putting their mental health and their well-being on the line great point there for sure and before we get to our rapid questions how can people uh watch the business of amateur because i know again i watched it back in 2016 when it first came out but how can people find that today
1: uh, it's on right now it's on amazon prime it has been for a little while that's probably the easiest it's, it's free to watch um, i don't really care you know <laughs> in terms of how the money uh whether it gets spent or not it's on iTunes it's on any platform that you can download if you want to, to own it um, i think there's some DVDs out there if people want to uh, look for them on Amazon i think they're harder to get now uh, some blu-rays and whatnot uh, but amazon prime is probably the best way to do it and uh, yeah you can iTunes any any platform that's streaming
0: it has it Awesome. And like I said, I always go through three rapid questions with individuals. And it's more so kind of just get you know people's quick thoughts on us. So in your opinion, what makes a well athlete?
1: A well athlete is somebody whose body and mind are sound and working in conjunction. And, um, and, and, and ultimately, there has to be synergy there. It's how they perform at a high level. Um, but it's also
0: how they can continue performing at that high level without being a detriment to themselves. Awesome. Yeah, I love that connection between, like I said, the body and the mind. Again, you know, one can't work with the other. What's one word of advice you wish you could give your younger self? Oh, wow. That's a good question.
1: Uh, <laughs> I, I think um, continue to stay healthy because what happens, you know, what happened for me was I, I pushed myself physically so much that, I I didn't want to work out for a while. It wasn't until I found out a healthy way to work out um, and got back into it. And when you take enough time off, it gets harder. And, you know, it it just, you know, your long-term health can be determined by what you do in the short, you know, when you're, when you're younger. And so I think if I can go back in my twenties and maintain kind of that physical fitness that I had in my late twenties, rather than, you know, just, having an aversion to wanting to to work out in a healthy way because I was so used to having to push myself to where it wasn't enjoyable and uh, being physically healthy is a, a component of being mentally healthy, you know, and, and they, you know, it, it really is a possible mental affect that takes place when you're physically healthy. Yeah,
0: So true. And what currently brings you peace?
1: My family, you know, I'll tell you, taking on the role of being a father is, is the best role that I've ever had um you know being an educator being a filmmaker being a football player you know it's just one of these when you have kids they tell you oh it's a love you've never known and it is that and it's what I thought it would be but it's a worry that you've never known and you you worry if they're going to be walking and choking on things and you know being able to get out of diapers and making friends and then now eventually you know are they going to get into the college they want to get into are they going to have a great family are they going to be happy there and it's it's one of those worries that never goes away and um, it's something that i'm thankful for because i have such a deep connection to my kids and my wife and my family and uh it's what i look forward to every day and it's what motivates me and everything i do in my life
0: awesome you know, I, I gotta say i love that answer because again you know it's something that you know is yours and especially you know all the roles you have had Again, that would be, you know, the top one for sure. Bob, I want to thank you again for coming on, you know, talking about your story, your journey, and your experience. Again, it's great to see it. The film, I remember again, seeing it back in 2016 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I think that was the launch of it back then, actually. And, you know, great to see, you know, what you've done and, you know, using your voice to help the masses.
1: Well, my pleasure. And thank you for having me on. And thank you for creating a platform for, Something like this.
0: I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Folks, if you enjoyed today's episode and want to check out other episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Sp- Audible, and Podbean. You can also follow us on social media at Wellness Athletic Services on Facebook and Instagram. If you have any questions or ideas for the show, feel free to email us at services at gmail.com. Thank you, and stay well.